Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is at least half on holidays right now. I'm Scott Phillips. I'm the one on holidays. The guy who's still working, keeping the fort going, minding the fort, keeping the operations going, speaking the wheels turning, the insert analogy here. He's my good mate, Dr. Nirman Mahanti. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, mate. How are you? Oh, well, I'm on holidays. Oh, you, mean, should be, well, you should be awesome. Well, I'm literally, well, I suppose I'm metaphorically, I mean, kind of, if I was a time traveler, I'd be on holidays right now. That's right. In fact, I am right now, except I'm not right now because right now is not right now. Not right now is last week. Time to move on. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I am on holidays right now. I, I'm camping with my family, my extended family, uh, my, my lovely mother and sister, brother-in-law and their kids uh, and our family. We're up on the north coast of New South Wales on the Clay River as I speak, camping. Hope they're having a wonderful time. The forecast isn't spectacular. A couple of days of rain mm. apparently, so I'm a little bit mindful of that. So cross your fingers for me if you're that sort of person. But we didn't want to leave you without a podcast because we're not those sort of people. We've had every single week bar one. When I was unfortunately and unexpectedly delayed in hospital, mate, we've done a podcast since we started this one. So we're going to keep that record going. And we thought we'd talk this week about – we did one on moats, which people really enjoyed, the competitive advantages a few months ago now. We thought we'd do one this week on investing mistakes. Now, we don't want to be Debbie Downers. We're not going to focus just on the downsides of this. But what we're going to do is highlight them as things to avoid, so ways to stop you losing money or hopefully losing money. Also to, in the avoidance of same – ways to actually make you money. So don't think of mistakes necessarily as things that, well, only will cost you money. But if you learn from them, if you avoid them, if you can change your thinking, the opposite of mistakes isn't just avoiding loss. Hopefully, is also about making some gains. So maybe we should call this how to make money by avoiding mistakes rather than just how to avoid those mistakes. We'll work on the title of the podcast later. We'll edit this out and update I think so. Okay. Um, Mate, we, we talked about this in general. I kind of had the idea germinating, but there was an interesting tweet from Ben Carlson out this morning, which kind of, and we recorded this on Thursday, the 29th of September. So again, if the market's blown up in the last week and a bit, <laughs> my apologies. Um, ben Carlson, uh, who tweets under a wealth of CS, is his Twitter handle. Check this out, right? So this is as of the 24th of September. God knows what happens in the next week. He says, as of today, there's 2020 returns as of today. And he says, NASDAQ 100 plus 25%. S&P 500 plus 2%. As of three weeks ago, NASDAQ 100 up 43%. So it's gone from 43 to 25 in three weeks. S&P 500 plus 12%. So keep that in your head. As of March 23, the 2020 return for the NASDAQ was minus 20%. And the S&P 500 was minus 30%. And he finishes with, I guess how you feel right now depends on what you're anchoring to. And I thought that was a really, really nice way to just highlight, frankly, the mistake of anchoring, which we'll talk about. But just think about that, right? So between the 1st of January and March 23, the S&P 500 was down 30%. Now, for the full year, it's up 2%. So if you anchor to that low, you've made, let's just add the numbers together for the fun of it, the math is slightly different, but you've made 32% since the middle of March. That's a pretty bloody good result, except if you're comparing today versus three weeks ago, you're down 10% and feeling terrible. And if you're comparing to the 1st of January, it's like, well, up 2% for the year, that's pretty good. That's that's okay. I mean, it's not great, but it's not terrible and that'd be okay. And if if you'd gone into a coma on the, on the, <laughs> on the 2nd of January, woken up today, you think, Mark's up 2%, that's pretty good, I'll take that. It's been, a, it's been a nice sleep and I'm, I'm happy. But again, what you're comparing to really, really matters. The S&P 500 is down 10% in three weeks, 
but it's up 32% in six months. And that probably is one of the really key things that keep investors. And look, you know, we talked um, last week's podcast, Doc, about my rant about the headlines, about things, you know, shares on longest longest losing streak in four months. And then it was best performance in nine weeks. And then it was going to crash because the economic outlook was bad. And, you know, the, the anchoring the daily, the monthly, the weekly, the whatever, it's all about what you kind of start with and how you think about your investing. And that can have so many, so many different combinations of permutations so many different costs and, and potential advantages and opportunities so let's start with anchoring mate talk to me about the mistake of anchoring and how you particularly overcome it yes yeah, so anchoring is a, you have just described it right you look at a past price and you just basically think of that as the price right, right? and you know so it happens that you just explained that at at, at an index level it can mm-hmm. actually happen at a portfolio level too right so if you for example depending on how you set up your portfolio you can see year-to-date gains yeah right and if you keep your year-to-date gain in mind then then you might notice oh you know it was up this much and now it's down this much and mm-hmm. if you'll feel mm-hmm. terrible so it has psychological impacts as well um one way i solve the psychological impact is i actually don't look at I've got it set up to not show year-to-date gain. Oh, I have to that's specifically smart. look at it. The only thing I like to look at yeah. in the portfolio is my percentage total gain mm. overall okay. measured with respect to how many dollars I've put in. That's all oh, I care about. Okay. And in my mind, that's the most that's important. Smart. I like, that. like I mean, it's not. It's not a like you know we 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 do this for a job, so performance yep. measures. Yep. You know, we are, we are attuned to thinking. You know, it's how much percentage are you being in the market? <laughs> this, that, yeah, yeah. blah 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 yeah, blah blah. Yeah. All those things are important. Yep. But psychologically, yep. what's really important is if I put in hundred dollars, yep. and that's one thousand today. Everything else doesn't matter, right? What matters is really, I put in hundreds <laughs> and a half thousand, right? That's right. Whether it was 2010 days ago yeah. is really material. Yeah. And if the thousand that you have today is enough, yeah. well, job well done, yeah. right? So that's one way to deal with sort of at the at the portfolio level, sort of, you know, anchoring. At, at, at a position buying level, this is a real problem for, mm. for, for buying uh, is, and it's a common thing that happens to people is, suppose you buy shares in company XYZ, let's say Kogan. Yep. And you bought it at three dollars. Yep. Now it's eight. Mm-hmm. And then the first thing you think, well, it's great. I did very well. I'm a genius. I'm a genius. Fantastic. <laughs> or, or let's say Scott is a genius. And Scott recommended it to you, and 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 you bought it. So let's say Scott is the genius. But now <laughs> we, both, we both picked it in our shares for twenty nineteen and twenty twenty. That, that we did, but you know, but it's it's a recommendation in your service, and you've said that a number of times. So I'm just using you as an example. And and but then. When is it eight dollars? You're setting you up for a fall here, aren't you? No, but but, but, <laughs> but when is it eight dollars? Yep. You say, ah, but you know, I wish I'd bought more at three. Yeah. Right. Because you're anchoring to the fact that it was it was three when it's you gone first away bought. Away from me now. I it's wish gone I bought more away at three. from you, right? I'm an idiot. Uh, oh, well, uh, missed well, that well, but you missed that again, and you let it be. Well, now today it's twenty dollars, right? Yeah. Um, and, and now I'm using these numbers, and there could be some number where it has gone backwards. But the yeah. important point there is, we can't really go back in time. Mm. What we need to do is look at it now, think about it, what we think the value is today, yeah. considering what we know now and what we yeah. think the future might look like. Yeah. That's the decision point. What happened in the past is the past is the past. It's past, you know, history sort of, you know, mm-hmm. rhymes, mm-hmm. but doesn't really repeat, right? Yeah. So um, you you want to look at the past to get some idea of what may happen in the future, but you don't have a view of the future. So that's really the most important mm-hmm. thing uh, in terms of anchoring is to not... And the same thing, I guess, happens for selling as well, right? Yeah. So 
you bought a share at a dollar. That's right. It's now at fifty cents. Yes. And you desperately want get want to get back to that yeah. dollar. I'll wait till it gets back. I don't want to, I don't want to crystallize a loss. I'll wait till it gets back to a dollar before I sell. Right. That's you know, and then it might happen that it never gets back to a dollar. It actually goes back to twenty five cents. Uh, I think you were saying Myers never got back to whatever yeah, the IPO price. Exactly. So, uh, well, so, yeah, that's the thing, right? If, you, if you'd have held Meyer all the way through and it dropped a little bit, and dropped a little bit more, and dropped a little bit more, you thought I'll wait till it gets back there. Yeah. It's been this horrible one way downward spiral. Yeah. So it happens on both sides. Well, that's that's yeah. I think what I think about. You, know, you want to add something to it? I love that, mate. That's a really, really strong summary. I, I'm going to add only only a thought. And I looked at so people know I, I like salt patents. Washington H. Salt Patents is the company. I own shares in the, in the company. And I shared with you blokes the other day the five year chart. And it was for a different conversation, but but it, it struck me because so the shares are now trading about, well, they've gone up today, but let's let call it 23 bucks to make my life easy, right? Now, there are $23 now. If you look back in the past, that is so the shares were sixteen dollars in April, so they're up fifty percent since then. The shares were sixteen bucks in let me go back to February twenty eighteen, so they're up fifty percent since then. Good performance, right? Except they're also down by almost fifty percent. Oh, sorry, uh, about thirty percent from March twenty nineteen. So is the stock done well or badly? Well, it depends on what you even even if you don't look at the price you pay, but you just simply look at a share price chart. The thing, you know the funny thing about sort of one-year rolling prices, right, is that at some future point, the shares will – the 12-month-ago price will be both $16, and then a few months later, the 12-month-ago price will be $30. And if the share price stays at 23 at different points, that'll look like a great success and a terrible failure because you'll pick up a, a chart, you'll pick up a, a table of 52-week highs and lows, or you'll pick up a table of, you know, greatest gains and losses. And SOPATs could be on both those lists in the space of a few months. And – you know, yes, if you bought at those two prices, that matters a lot. But if you didn't, if you think, oh man, the shares are down from 30 bucks, I'm an idiot. Or, oh man, the shares are up from 16 bucks, I'm a genius. Those two things are both true. And exactly, this, at $23, those those statements are both true at the same time, depending on what, what number you use. And so again, for anchoring purposes, that's why I desperately hate these one-year performance, you know, five-year performance ideas because they take two individual points in time. The shares may have not traded at those two prices ever again during the entire five-year period, but that one arbitrary period on the 24th of September 2015 and the 24th of September 2020, we're recording today, um, those are the only two numbers that matter for a five-year chart. It doesn't matter how much higher or lower it traded during that entire period. And so that's why, you know, yes, if you held it during that point, I mean, the data is real. It's, it's yeah, The calculation is true. But you can kind of have multiple truths at the same time. And anchoring to single points in time can really give you that sort of outcome. And that, I think, you know, it can be fine and it can be useful and it can be instructive. But like everything, use the data to inform, not to decide. And that's, I think, the most important one. I love your idea, though, Doc, of just simply not looking at your, your year-to-date numbers at all. I think it's a really, really smart thing to do. Let me let me go to another one, mate. I've 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 uh, given myself a hard time on this one before publicly, and I'll happily lash myself again because it's um, the more I do it, hopefully the less I'll do it again in future. Selling too soon. Now you're a bloke who who holds for the long term. Maybe you don't have an example of this one, so I'll go first, and you can chime in at the end. Maybe just to rub salt my wounds, or maybe share some stories of your own. I I don't sell too soon very often anymore, and selling is a really difficult one. It kind of comes back to anchoring, mate. Like. If you see, it's one of those things, you know, we, we don't, we don't, the stocks we never buy, you kind of never bother with, right? We talked about AGL on last week's podcast. And the fact that neither of us have ever bought AGL, we kind of don't really know or care what happens to the share price. But I'll tell you what, if you, if you buy a company and then sell it, you really, really notice what happens to the share price after you sell. And you can feel just because you used to own it, somehow you feel more attuned to the potential gains or losses after you sell. And that's, 
probably a mistake because you could hold or have sold 2,000 other companies on the ASX, as you said last week. The fact that this happened to be this one company is not very useful. That being said, you want to be mindful that if you already own the stock, you hopefully know a little bit about it. You'll know a little bit about the company, you know how it makes money, you know what its performance looks like, who runs the ship, you know, all that stuff you kind of you kind of should know. And when it comes to a business, if you've done the work to buy it and you've done that well, you've bought a company that's worth owning, that, that you has passed your kind of tests of businesses that are worth adding to my portfolio, you want to be careful you don't sell that too soon. My example, unfortunately, is Domino's Pizza. Now, I've told this story before, probably on the podcast. Uh, I recommended it at six bucks a share, give or take. There might be seven, something like that anyway. And and you know, it was it was it was a growing business and it was doing pretty well. And it was, you know, we thought more people would buy more pizza and that was all fine. So I recommended it. And then it got to about 13 bucks. And same store sales growth, which had been phenomenal, was a little bit less phenomenal. Kind of the, the downtrend had started. It was going, you know, growing at six percent, and then next year was four percent, something like that. And I thought, ah. I've done well. The shares, it was actually less than 12 months I made that game. So I felt like a genius, right? I've almost doubled my, my, my money, less than 12 months. The growth is starting to slow. Things are getting a bit tough for the business. I mean, how much more pizza can people really eat? I said. So I recommended our members sell and I sold my own shares and we made a 80 odd percent gain and I was a genius. I was a hero. I'd done all these wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. And the shares promptly went from 13 to about 75. And that hurts. <laughs> and it was one of those things where I just got too clever for my own good, right? I, I looked at this business and said, it's done really well, but but how long can it keep growing for? And what if it doesn't keep growing? And I've already made this money. Surely you can't go broke taking a profit. And it's right, I didn't go broke. But we mentioned again the value of compounding, right? The 6 to 13 was impressive. The 13 to 70, that's a five-ish fold gain, six maybe. Except from my cost base, that six-fold gain would have actually been a 12 fold gain because I'd already doubled the money or almost doubled the money from that point forward. Selling too soon can really be costly. Now, if you don't sell too soon, you can also sell too late, right? Holding, not selling too soon means holding on for longer, letting things play out a bit further. I have owned businesses that have then subsequently gone badly because I've waited too long. Business started to look ordinary like, oh, maybe I should, I don't don't know, I'll give it some more time. And sometimes that's gone really badly for me. But I'll tell you what, mate, I have lost nowhere near, nowhere near, as much money holding for a little bit too long as I've cost myself from selling too soon when it was a good business doing good things. So for me, the lesson I've hopefully learned is don't sell too soon. Your thoughts? Oh, I think that's, that's. I don't have anything significant to add uh, to that. I think that generally, you know, I think if you buy well, then you can actually have the luxury of uh, selling slowly because you've bought well. That's I think one, and the uh, my my I, I my philosophy with selling really is um, I, I sort of use a quality threshold marker. So okay. if 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 I have a very high quality portfolio of a company, um, I'll be very generally be very generous with uh, giving it leeway. Mm. I'm less generous with uh, companies that are not. That high quality, right? And mm. and then you might, you know you can ask the question. Well, why would you own a company that's not high quality? Because well, you know sometimes in the highest quality company is also Mm-mm. priced um, as such. So therefore, you might want to you know trade off some amount of quality for a lesser right, quality right, right. company, but at a better price and maybe better opportunity. Mm. And and for those ones, I, I tend to be a little less um, like that, okay. willing. So yep. it's, it's on a spectrum of things. Yes, if it's the best company possible, then never sell or the equivalent of never sell. 
and and then for some others shortish. Mm, mm, nice. I, I will say too the the only caveat I will draw is if you've actually just made a mistake in the buy thesis in the first place. So mm. you know this was a company that was actually you know growth was happening might have been as fast as I wanted, but you know the, the, what I expected to happen was happening. If I made a straight up mistake, like I, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, so Collection House is an example of a company I sold because I fundamentally miss. Uh, I won't say mis- I'll probably misunderstood actually quite frankly what I did was I applied the wrong mental model to its business model so Collection House collected debt collected money on that bought debt collected money on that debt and if it made a profit collected more than it paid it made money right that makes sense and you can think of that as an inventory type business you buy cost of goods you make some money you sell it that's that's how these things work that makes some sense what I had misunderstood is that while that's true its pricing was impacted more like insurance where a lot of competition pushed prices down. Not much competition let prices rise in terms of how much you paid, or how much you received, sorry, and, and the reverse when how much you paid. So the more competition, the the, the higher price was paid for the, for the debt you were buying, and so the smaller the margins would be. They talk about that hard and soft pricing and in insurance. If you think about it that way, all of a sudden you realise that more competition has to, by definition, lower the, the margins as long as there's enough competition to soak up the available debt to be able to be bought, and I got that wrong. And so when I realised that, I was like, ah, oh, Really screwed that up. Now, unfortunately, it was after the share price had fallen, but it saved us losing even more money by selling out at that point when we realized I simply had, had misunderstood or misapplied the, the model, the mental model, when it came to the business and make sure I got the, the story right when it came to, um, to to analyzing that. And when I was simply straight out wrong, it was the right, it was absolutely the right thing to do. Even if the share price had gone up afterwards, you know, it, it doesn't mean you're never going to make a mistake. Just these heuristics tend to, and these, with all these mistakes, there are always going to be exceptions, but the heuristics tend to work. Mate, um, fear and greed, the two monsters that stalk every investor ever. Um, they are, to some degree, it's part of selling too soon. To part, some degree, it's also part of anchoring, but these are very specific ones, right? The idea of of seeing other people make money or worrying about the possibility of a share price crash or extrapolating in either direction. Share price are going up, so they have to keep going up. Share price are falling, they have to keep falling. Fear and greed, they are emotions and they're not they're not unreasonable emotions. They're not we're not we're not saying that to have them is the problem. Um, it's the old thing about temptation, the old religious thing about, you know, being tempted is not a problem. It's giving into temptation that's the that's the issue. Um, fear and greed are ever present. They they just they have to be almost by definition. Um, unless you're Dr. Spock or Mr. Spock from Star Trek and you happen to be Vulcan with, with no emotions, um, they're always going to be, uh, they're an ever-present companion, or they're both ever-present companions. Can you give think of some examples where fear and greed have run your investing and or how you would help our, our listeners overcome those twin emotions? Yeah, so this is a, this is a good one. I mean, uh, I think for, so the greed part is basically FOMO. So, you know, fear of missing out. Everybody is <laughs> yes. getting into something. Yeah. Uh, therefore, you have to get into something. Right. This one, I think the easiest thing is you do this a few times and you realize this doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> so experience is the biggest teacher. This is the experience is the biggest teacher. Yeah. Right. You know, like when everybody's doing <laughs> a trade because that's the trade to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, once you've done that a few times and you see that you blow up money, uh, <laughs> you know what I figured yeah. is that when somebody's doing a trade and I come to know that that's the trade, it's I'm usually really last. You know, <laughs> so so that's well, that's the thing, right? You yeah. don't want to be, you know, everyone's already on the trade. It's like yeah, yeah. we're the last one in the door. Yeah, you don't want to be the last one. That's usually the surefire <laughs> way of it. So you, I mean, this one, I think you just have to experience it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, experience is just the best teacher. The same thing with greed too. Like you know, at after you've experienced. Um, you know, 
a few of these pullbacks and mm. big pullbacks. When I say pullback, I mean mm. the ones that you know your portfolios are down 30, 40 percent. Mm. I think you just become better uh, prepared mm. and and better able to deal with it. I think that's again maybe experience is the main thing here. What you, I think there's a fine line. What you don't want is uh, ossification. So you, you want to be aware that every FOMO and every uh, every greed and every fear is slightly different, mm. and you want you want to have your I guess your eyes open and not become not just stereotype everything. So I think that's yeah, right. that's the the other thing to think about. Otherwise, I mean, uh, I think just being a little bit less attached. Mm. To, you know, I mean, I just go by the assumption that. A portfolio can be down fifty percent at any given point in time, and you should be okay with that idea. If you're not okay with that idea, then it's going to be really hard when something close to that happens. Yeah, right. Okay. Right, and and I, th- I think again, taking sort of a, a portfolio level view and and thinking about you know how you react to it. Then the same thing. I mean, as, mm, yeah, mm. I think you should be happy when your portfolio is doing well, and you should be then not that unhappy when your portfolio is not doing that well it's hard isn't it right i mean it's hard to celebrate success and and kind of not then let failure be as impactful you know if you you let your emotions out out on one on one angle it's hard to kind of rein them back in when things aren't going so well um I, I always really like the, the Rudyard Kipling poem, If, and I think it's it's a bit, it can be a little bit too trite for some people, but the idea of kind of, you know, not letting success or failure get, you know, carry you away, um, to try and remain to some degree realis- realistic and reasonable, uh, to understand that both can be taken away from you at the moment's notice. Um, Enron, Enron investors who made a fortune for a very long time, uh, found out the success becomes failure very quickly when it was exposed as a fraud. Um, equally, there are plenty of companies who have done terribly for a long time and then all of a sudden taken off and you know the, the, the so-called failure becomes success over time. They're extreme examples, of course, but just a reminder that um, you know either, either can happen. For me, Doc, the, the best teacher actually has been, well, part of the experience, as you say, you've just got to live through it. And the more you do, it, it's a little bit Darwinian, right? If you make it through a few times, you're probably okay, but some people don't make it through a few times because you just can't deal with the first or second or third time, so you just give up. Um, so, that, I mean, that that's that's problematic in itself, I suppose. I really quite like... Um, I, I like history as a teacher for this one. I've said min, like a million times, if I had a dollar for every time I've recommended this, mate, I'd be a, I'd be a squillionaire. Um, Google Vanguard Index Chart 2019. Um, if you can look at history and really grasp... And it's hard again having not if you haven't gone through it, it's kind of hard to contextualize some of the big falls and the big events. But the Vanguard chart's great because it kind of not only do you see the chart of share prices and other assets, but you also they overlay it with the prime ministers and presidents. They overlay it with kind of big macroeconomic or big geopolitical events that happen at the same time. And you kind of see that despite all those things, share prices keep going up. And it kind of puts oh well, you, you can't do it with the eighty nine the sorry the uh, two thousand nine one anymore nineteen one anymore. Jeez, get my years right because it's now eighty seven is now more than thirty years away. But if you look at the eighty seven crash or the G, the the Asian financial crisis, the ninety nine dot com crash, the GFC. All of those problems that felt big at the time, yeah, they're still they're still meaningful bumps in the chart, but they really do. You can put it in really historical context. You kind of go, well, hang on, if and and it's it's tragic, right? There were literally stockbrokers jumping out of windows in 1987, and yet you still over time turn that turn up a hypothetical 10 grand or 100 grand over that 30 year period after that, right? And you kind of think, well, hang on, if that was if that was the case, 
I mean, I feel sorry for the poor bastards that, that went through it and really were, you know, some died, some, you know, gave up, some people never invested again in shares and, and lost that opportunity to 10 bag their investment over 30 years just because they simply gave up on the idea. But if you can, if you can look at that chart and say, so all those things that were big deals at the time really aren't big deals in hindsight, both success and failure, by the way. You know, the dot-com crash, to some degree, the crash is important. The boom is also important before that, right? Take both of those out. Take out the boom, take out the crash and say, just slow and steady actually did win that race, does win the race. Um, don't get carried away with the success. Don't get carried away. Don't get too despondent about failure. Uh, fear and greed are ugly, ugly, ugly companions. They will always be there. But if you can kind of contextualize them and put them in the right space, recognize them, deal with them, um, almost make your peace with them, really. Recognize they're going to be there and, and kind of do it anyway rather than wait for them to go away. That's probably the best advice I've got to managing that particular one. Any other thoughts? That's a good one. Mate, our co-founder, David Gardner, uh, your investing hero, I think it's probably fair to say, certainly a guy I, I respect greatly. Um, I'm not the same sort of investor as you guys are, so it doesn't have exactly the same the same position for me, but certainly in the pantheon of great investors. Um, says only dips buy on dips. Uh, and, and he's kind of being funny in a very David Gardner way, a very, a very gentle way that David Gardner does this. He does it with more panache and style than I can ever do. Um, but the idea that people say this, this, you know what? We should we should go into we should do an episode on stock market cliches one day, mate. Because uh, buy on the dip is one of those things that that stockbrokers say, that investment analysts say, that in theory sounds smart, right? Who wouldn't want to buy when shares are cheaper? Like, how, how can that possibly be bad advice? Except, it's very, very, very bad advice, isn't it? <laughs> Explain to me how. <laughs> you want me to do that? Mm. Are you supposed to do the work here? All right. So here's the thing. Um, the, the simple example I often give is if you're waiting for a five percent fall, we call they call it a pullback to make it sound like it's somehow a thing, right? Shares don't four five percent, they pull back five percent, and, and a share that's getting that's taken off, it's going really well, but it pulls back five percent. You might have said, that, oh, the share price is consolidating at this lower level, right? So it goes from one hundred and ninety-five, and they say, well, buy on the dip. Why wouldn't if it's been a hundred bucks? Why wouldn't you buy ninety-five bucks? I mean, who doesn't want to buy cheaper? Of course you do. Makes perfect sense. Except if I then told you that the shares were fifty bucks twelve months earlier and had slowly risen from 50 to 100 over that time. And in fact, we're only over 95 for five days. Doesn't it, wouldn't it have made sense to have bought shares any other time except on that dip? How much money has it cost that person by waiting for that particular dip? Of course, if you think shares are worth 100 bucks and sell for 95, then buy them cheaper, sure. But the idea that you should wait for a pullback when shares tend to go up over time and shares in quality companies in particular, you mentioned quality before, Doc, businesses that are getting it done, they're going to rise over time because their profits are growing. It makes no sense for them not to do that. Uh, you know, I can use some examples of stocks you've owned. I'll use some examples on, on, on the ASX. Um, Kogan, similarly, you mentioned go from three to eight. If I say, you know, it's gone from three to eight, I'll wait till it falls to 750 to buy the shares. I don't, maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but if it didn't go back to 750 and went to 20, it's cost me a 250% gain while I waited for a 5% pullback. It just makes absolutely no sense to me. And as David Gardner would say, only dips buy on dips. Fantastic. I like that. Do you have any other thoughts? Um, no. Uh, I mean, you know, if you ask David Gardner um, in any particular year which direction the market goes, he, he always says <laughs> up, right? Because on average, the market goes up. Um, although we know the market goes down every now and yep. then, but it, on average, the market goes up. As we so, said, he goes, he goes up two years out of three. So he's got a 60% chance of being right. It's better than a coin toss. <laughs> yeah, it's better than a coin toss. So. Um, it's yeah. a pretty good way to do it, it's right? It's a pretty good, cool way to do it. Yeah, I don't have anything else to add add to that. I, I think the, you know, the, so like suppose there's a share that you want to buy mm. and, and you think it's worth like 10 bucks as yep. an example yep. and it's trading for 1080. Yep. 
and you don't buy it that is like an example of nickel and diming right i mean yeah. you know you, you you know for 10% because your 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 calculation can be off but again depends on the type of company and things like that that's so maybe true. a company that was going to 10 bag you thought and you you mm-hmm. going to wait for it yeah, that's $10 right. that's, that's right. really a bad this could be a 100 dollar company one yeah. day it's $10 yeah. i'm going to wait for $10 yeah exactly that, think about that. that that is really bad <laughs> yeah. but at the, but at the same time i mean if this company is going to be a 100 100 dollar company yeah. and today you think it should you know you want to buy it for 10 yeah. and it's actually at 30 or 40. <laughs> yes, that's right. You know, there's, you maybe want to wait for that dip in this particular case. <laughs> so uh, you, you want to, you know, you want to buy it at the right price. Not so, so, yeah. you know, so I think that there's a little bit of a price component there. But yeah, the yeah, market goes up over time. I think the difference I make there, mate, is, you know, the, the dip as opposed to fair value are two different things. Yes, two very different. So I'm not yeah. for a second saying pay any price. Like I'm really, like, yes. that's a good point, right? So to, to be really, really, really clear, I'm not saying buy, buy, always pay the market price for everything. If you've got a share that's worth 10 bucks trading at 40, then don't buy that. Don't buy it at 40. Don't buy it if it dips to 35 either, by the way. Like, yeah. buy it at a price you think is reasonable. But that's very, very different. So, you know, saying I will buy shares of Doc and Scott's um, Retail Emporium at $10 if they're 40 now, that probably makes sense, mate. That people should wait for a 75% fall to buy shares in our, in our company. Um, neither, of, neither you and I are great retailers. Then, if it's worth 10 bucks, only pay 10 bucks or 1080 or 1050 or 950. Mm-hmm. Don't pay 30. The, but but we're not saying the, the buy and dips idea is that the general bloody stock market rubbish that we hear stockbrokers all the time say is well shares have fallen five percent now's the time to buy buy on the dip and that's where they're not, they're not talking about versus a price they think they're not saying well it's only worth 95 so wait till it hits 95 from 100 they're just saying well it was x whatever the price is who cares what it was it's now five percent lower therefore it must be a good idea to buy if it's if it's a 40 dollars stock worth worth ten dollars don't buy a 40 dollars stock when it hits 40 at uh, 35 just because it's fallen but equally, as you say, mate, if it's if it's a, if it's a ten, yeah, if it's worth if it's worth a hundred bucks and you can buy it for ten eighty, don't wait for it to fall to ten. That would also be completely crazy. Motley Fool Money, financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Doc, talk to us about this is one that I've I've made the mistake of before, but rather rather than me share my mistakes again because you know there's only so many mistakes I can deal with before I have to call in a fiddle position in the, in the corner. You've mentioned quality quite a few times today and last week, and you've talked about how you treat quality companies. One of the things that, and this kind of goes to the last point a little bit in terms of price, but paying up for quality. One of the mistakes a lot of investors can make, particularly value investors, and I, don't, I won't, I, I kind of I kind of have a value background. I've kind of, I was a deep value guy for a while, and I kind of got a little bit of that value in the back of my head and it escapes every now and again, much to your chagrin, Doc. Um, but, you know, it can be so tempting to try and want the best price for everything. And as you say, some companies, that makes perfect sense. If you're buying a company that is a really slow grow with predictable income, paying too much is going to kill you because you just, you'll never make it back. On the other hand, waiting for a super value price for a quality business, a bit like we said about the $10, $100 company. So it's kind of the same point to some degree, but it's a different story here. The mistake of not paying up for quality. Give us a story about that. Yeah, so I mean, uh, not paying for quality. Uh, th- there can be many examples that you know. That that's, it's, I think effectively, the the story there would be that a, a particular company looks expensive um, today because, well, on on any traditional metric that you're, you know people look at, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. on a trailing metric, they look, oh, this is a PE of one hundred. How can I buy this? Um, and and the reason this plays up on people's mind is mm. I think the first question I ask myself if something is an a P of 100 is 
why is it an IPA of 100, right? Yeah, yeah. And and or whatever is it now? I'm just making this up as as 100. But yeah, and and yeah. then. And then the question really is to see, well, is it really high quality? Can it sustain? And often what happens is these are companies that are growing really fast, sales growth, high sales growth, high revenue growth. Um, right. And then I think these companies will always tend to look what people would call quote-unquote expensive. Well, they're going to, right? I mean, i got to say, you look at a company 100p and you think, well, okay, it might be a good company, but 100? Like... I can, yeah. The market's 15 or 16. I can buy Woolies for 20. I can buy CBA for 11. I mean, okay, maybe this is a bit better than those companies, but 100 times earnings? Yeah, so that sounds very high, right? But, you know, think about a company that is, you know, potentially doubling their earnings, right? So if, mm-hmm. the, if the earnings are growing at 100%, then what is 100 times earnings now becomes 50 times earnings next year becomes 25 times earnings, I think. Right. Uh, the year yeah. after, and all, all, and all of a sudden now it'll appear yeah. really cheap, yeah. right? So I think that's that's number one. I, I think what trips people is um, there are two related ideas. One is that people, by design, and when I say people, I'm, I'm you know I'm talking about everyone. Yep. In, by by definition, it's very hard in in mind to think about a company that can compound say revenues. Mm. At 30, 40% for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Right? Anybody builds, who builds a model, if, if some company is growing at 100%, they would go 100%, yeah. then go, you know, 70%, then, you know, go probably 60%, then, you <laughs> right. know, 50%, and then, you know, 40%, yeah. and then, you know, trail it off. And then there's going to be like a 5%. Maybe if they're, yeah. if they're generous, they're going to say, after year 10, it's going to yeah. go at 5%. It's kind of economy plus a bit because it's a premium company. So yeah. GDP will grow at three. I guess five is not unreasonable. That seems fair. That seems fair. And it's also, so it's just, un, it seems unreasonable in our mind to think that a company can grow at 25% plus right. for decades. Well, it kind of seems reckless, right? You, you, I mean, even even you and I, like, I mean, you're, again, you're much more a growth investor than I am, but I've actually, I actually stopped using DCFs for most discounted cash flow analysis, that kind of idea you're talking about, in large part because... I needed to. I needed to stop myself doing exactly what you just described because it feels reckless. How can you say a company can grow at thirty percent in eight years' time? Yeah, it just feels like it's like, well, I, I mean, it, it could I guess, but but maybe it should be conservative and and really most companies don't and 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 you couldn't. I mean, there is really it, even if I never showed anybody, it almost feels like I, I think to myself, well, if I had to show someone that I put thirty percent in the eighth year of growth, like how do how do I? And I, I mean, that, that's just, it's irresponsible. It's reckless. Like, you can't do that, surely. Yeah. So, and then just because of the sheer difficulty of that, I think yeah. it becomes hard to buy those sort of businesses that are yeah. going to do, you know, compound at that rate for a long time. But mm. those are the ones that are going to deliver astounding returns, largely mm. because, I mean, you know, if you can compound at 25% um, for like decades on, yeah. if you can do that for two decades, that's a phenomenal, that's going to be like, Ultra billions of dollars in revenue, it's amazing, right? That. And and if you have then a business structure that allows for a lot of that, you know, top line growth to basically come straight to the bottom line, yeah. Um, you know, th- so those are the companies that tend to win, you know, become like quasi monopolies or quasi duopolies, mm-hmm. uh, or corner the market, yeah. uh, and those are companies that also, you know, their their PEs look high because they because they can foresee that market opportunity and therefore they spend a lot on you know sales and marketing up front, mm. which pushes the sort of the cash flows out into the future. So, yeah, it's really, I mean, you sort of have to think about you know what I call total addressable market when mm, you're thinking mm, about mm. these sort of companies and then yeah. uh, you can sort of get over it. Mm. It's a good point. Uh, you know, this is one that I have learned over time. Um, I, I, I think I've said before in this podcast, I 
was someone who started with you know spreadsheets and spreadsheets and spreadsheets and manually entered numbers and I had 60 different ratios and and it was that idea of like you know if you could if you could somehow calculate it then it was concrete and you could kind of grasp it and you get your head around it and the idea of thinking a bit more broadly about hey what could this be how big could this be you know the, the it's a hard it's a hard thing to kind of to make the transition for but it's a really really useful worthwhile thing to um to try and get right if you can and and pay up for quality i've certainly avoided that mistake in recent times um thankfully in in some parts um there are some companies that you would say are quality company stock that i don't yet own so uh maybe maybe i'm not paying up enough for quality maybe i'm not recognizing quality we can have that debate another day uh, but certainly it's it's one that if you're an investor again we're not saying pay up for everything we're not saying pay any price for anything we're saying if there is genuine quality and like be objective, but if there's genuine quality there, then sometimes the the, the, the harder part, maybe the more, well, I think we would both agree, the most important part of the exercise here is if you've got to assess the price and assess the quality of the company, the stronger the, the Q score, if you like, the quality score, the less you should quibble over price um, and, and probably vice versa, quite frankly, the lower the quality, the more price actually does matter. Um, and again, you're not necessarily that guy, I'm not that these days, although I, Occasionally, I, I try and find a dirty fit or turn around or something. They very rarely work, to be fair. Um, but yeah, the, the higher the quality score, the less price should matter. Is that is that kind of a fair summary? Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, you don't pay any price, yes, but yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, if you are buying, you know, turn around and you yep. really need to do your maths right, right? Yep. Same thing goes for buying slow-moving vehicles. If you yeah, buy yeah. a slow-moving vehicle, then you want to, well, you know, know the price. I yeah, think that's absolutely right. Mate, I want to... I wanted I want to kind of flick that around a little bit and talk about some high-priced, fast-growing companies. Well, fast-growing share prices. <laughs> Let's talk about that. You mentioned FOMO. I had this written down as keeping up with the Joneses. It's the same thing. Um, there are companies you should be paying up for. And then there are circumstances where everyone, literally, capital E, everyone, is buying a particular company. We've seen in previous years Get Swift. I signed this. Foslock, of all things, was this bloody, you know, supposed to be taking, I think, push out of water or something. Um, uh, we've seen it with commodities from time to time. Lithium's been, has boomed and crashed and boomed and crashed. Um, buying something just because everyone else does and maybe more insidiously, buying because the share price goes up, you don't want to miss out. Literally, the fear of missing out. Keeping up with the Joneses, whatever, whatever version of this you want. Um, the, the other one is, you know, when your brother-in-law is making money from shares and you're not. <laughs> and you can't, like, you know, you can't stand seeing your brother-in-law get rich. I love my brother-in-law, by the way, but you know, others have issues with theirs. Um, there is that sense of like, you know, trying to keep up with the Joneses. Everyone else is making money on this company. The share price is going up. I guess I should jump into. Um, those are. And look, sometimes that's true, right? You may have thought that about, I'll use Amazon, I own the share, so do you. But, you know, at $10, if the share goes going up and up, you eventually went, oh, I guess I've got to buy it because I guess I've got to buy it. And that worked out pretty well. And so you can feel like that works. And then you've got, I sign this or get Swift or I'm sure you can think of others, mate, but certainly commodities have been like that. Nickel's been like that in the past. Lithium's been like that in the past. When everybody gets excited and the share price keeps going up or the commodity price, you just don't want to miss out. You know, it's like, well, I don't care. I, I can't really make sense of the company and the share price seems out of control, but gee, it's still going up. Maybe, I, 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 you know, how long can you sit by while everyone makes more and more and more money and you miss out? It can be tempted to just go, oh, bugger it. Just for the sheer emotional kind of, what's the word? Um, you know, uh, ablutions. Oh, no, ablution, wrong word. Um, you know, absolvance of, of just trying to, you know, okay, fine. I'll just, I'll just deal with the, the pain. By just buying, at least I'm at least I'm in the same party now. If I lose money, everyone else does too. At least I'm not missing out while they make money. That that's it, it, I, I'm not one that I've necessarily had particular personal interest or involvement with. Um, I'm possibly a bit contrarian by nature, so I don't tend to worry too much. 
But I have to say, there are times that I've gone, oh man, I, okay, sure, I'll just, I'll just do it because you know, I, I guess it, it, you know, everyone's doing, it, everyone's making money at it. You know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I convince myself that they know what they're doing. Um, there have been occasions in the past where I've been tempted to do that. I haven't yet gone for it, but I get the stress and the feeling. Any thoughts on keeping up with the Joneses and, and FOMO? Um, I think one way to sort of distinguish between um, where you're, I guess, paying up versus you shouldn't be paying up, it, simply at a very high level, mm. if there's no top line growth, so you, have, you know, a company was $100 million, then it's $200 million in market cap, then it's 300 then it's like all of a sudden it's a billion dollar market cap company, yet has no sales, no product. <laughs> That is dangerous. Yeah, right. Right. So I think you want to see whether a company has sales products, <laughs> something. Yep. And, you know, like, yes, a concept has value. Uh, but, you know, you can't make money off drawings, yeah, right? Okay. You need to have some real thing. So if there is sales growth, I'm not talking about profits. If yeah. there is sales growth, yeah. I think that's a good sign. Okay. If you've got sales growth, it passes my... It at least passes my smell test. If right. there is no sales growth and the share price is going up and it's FOMO, <laughs> somebody's going to be hurt. Yeah, okay. Because somebody has to get out. Uh, right, you right, know, right. somebody has to be able to get out at the right time to make money off it. Yeah. Otherwise, there's like basically there's you know it's like a pyramid, right? Even if sales are growing, is there a time when share price is growing simply in, in advance of sales? So the, I, I like you. So the first the first rule or the first filter is if share price is going up but sales aren't, then red flag. Yeah. If sales are growing but the share price either seems dramatically out of kilter or is just accelerating at a much faster rate than sales growth is there. How do you think about that? How do you, how do you kind of square that bit? Yeah, so the, I think that then it's like, uh, at least it's worthy of investigation, right? Uh -huh. I'm not saying that, you know, if, if sales growth is high, therefore buy. Uh, no. Um, I mean, then you have to investigate a, f a couple of different things, right? So if, suppose sales are growing at 100%, but shares are growing at 200%. Okay. Well, there's a disconnect there. Now, one way the disconnect might work or might be explainable mm. is if the model is, for example, it's got a lot of operating leverage, right? So you probably need only an X dollar of fixed cost, but after that X dollar of fixed cost, everything is like basically money for jam. So if that's the case, then you might actually be wanting to pay more than what the sales price, uh, the sales growth is relatively. Mm -hmm. and, and it might be okay and might be just, and there's a question of value there. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. uh, you know, deciding what it is. So, I mean, if there is leverage in the model, um, if there is a way for the model to become the dominant something, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a quasi-monopoly, quasi-duopoly, yeah. uh, um, those things will carry a premium price, right? And and as the market starts seeing that happen, yeah. it might start paying more. Um, so again, you know, it's it's a filter. All of these are filters, and there's no, you know, it's it, yeah. it's very fortunate that there is no rule, <laughs> because if it could be quantified into a bunch of rules, yep. then yep. Uh, we wouldn't be doing this, right? <laughs> that's right. And that, well, I mean, that's the thing about investing, right? We have so many people ask us. I I really struggle with this. We've been asked before, can you teach a course on investing? Or have you got a, can you write a book on investing? Or can you tell me what I have to do to invest well? And there are some heuristics, some kind of general approaches we take, some things that kind of tend to work more often than not. But as you say, if it was simple, I mean, computers were taken over long ago. If this was as simple as saying, you know, if, if it meets this criteria, then it's worth buying at X price. Because there is that question of quality. There is that question of price. Those are different things. There's that straight out question of how do you price that, right? Even even given the, given the components. Um, maybe one day we'll be replaced by robots, but not yet. And it's 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 hard to, it's it's genuinely hard to teach with any meaningful set of arbitrary rules. Because if that was possible, it 
you know, there would be no investment community. There would be no outperformers. Everything would be perfectly priced. We'd be in that stock market utopia, except for us because we wouldn't have jobs. But, um, but you know, that, that would be the result. There would be no stock market. I'd, I'd question that. I'd say there would be no stock market utopia anymore because the market would be perfectly fine and completely, uh, like, I guess, rational right, right. and very uh, efficient. And therefore, you know, stock market returns will then tend towards like the term yeah. deposit returns. Yeah, but they should, right? When yeah, you take risk out, that's right. You exactly. take all the risk out. So yeah, yeah, they, yeah. yeah. Uh, you want to be owning shares before that happens, right? Because at that point, it, for, for returns to fall means asset prices need to rise. So you want yeah. to be in that market. No. But you want to buy now if it's going to happen, is what I'm saying. Yeah, like I, I mean, because you have the benefit of the repricing. Yeah, well, when, when, before that happens, <laughs> exactly. I, I, before that happens, I, I want to have the Reserve Bank governor's job. So, <laughs> so I think that'll, that'll take care of everything. Too easy, too easy, <laughs> mate. Let's finish this one where I was going to I was going to talk about not understanding the business, but I, I think that's kind of a bit self self evident. Um, yeah. But I think it's well. Let's, let's touch on that very very briefly, actually. So I think you know a lot of investors, a lot of a lot of beginning investors too, start off with a sense that. They can invest by either following ticker codes or following share price movements or getting a tip from their mate or whatever. And even if they're right, those can start working out pretty well. But the problem is once you buy those shares, you're on your own on day two. So even if you have you get a tip from someone who knows what they're doing, including us, by the way, or somebody else, um, you can buy shares in, I'll say Woolies just to pick a name, because you, you get a good tip. And that person seems to know what they're doing. Their track record is you buy the shares. On day two, you're on your own. And you've then got to work out, do I buy more? Do I sell them? What am I looking for? How do I know if business is improving? How do I know if business is getting worse? How do I understand the balance sheet? How do, you, know, you, don't have to be a, you don't have to be a complete wonk. You don't have to have done a three-year you know, degree necessarily to do this job. In fact, some of our best investors in the US and here haven't come from traditional finance backgrounds. Like yourself, for example, you're a computer science PhD. Our co-founders are English majors uh, and are both beating the market soundly. There is that you know you don't have to be a finance expert per se, but if you're buying for any any reason at all, but you know whether whether it's a good tip, whether it's a bad tip, whether it's momentum, whether it's FOMO, whatever it is, on day two, you're kind of on your own, right? And so if you're going to buy something, at least please take the time to understand the business so you have a sense of why you own the stock. If only because next time when someone sell, says, "Oh no, you got you own that," that's terrible. You either have to say, "Oh okay, I'll sell," or "No, no, I'm sticking with the the tip I got." which could be a terrible idea or a great idea. Selling now could be a terrible idea or a great idea, but if you don't know what you own and why you own it, that can be a, a slippery slope, mate. And while even if the first decision is right, compounding wealth needs you to kind of have some sense, not not, not expertise, not, as I said, you know, computer science PhDs or or English majors or, or finance majors, but just some sense of why you own what you own and some semblance of understanding whether the, share, the current price is even relatively, remotely, roughly right. Yeah, I, I think that you, I think you've beautifully captured everything. There's nothing, you know. Uh, I'll just add that, you know. Uh, I think we try so individually. I think the key word there is to try to understand. I yeah. think there's no way to perfectly understand anything. Like there's no like I mean, there's no hundred percent understanding. Go <laughs> back to utopia or lack yeah. thereof, right? Yeah, it's like we can't. There's no business that I would say I know one hundred percent in and yeah. out. Yeah. Um, and 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 that, that I think that's okay. There, there is a there's a level of information, level of knowledge you want, yeah. which is sufficient. Beyond which, additional actual knowledge really add, adds very little delta. Um, that's a good point. Yeah, delta to your you know returns, and that it really you know I mean there's yeah, only so yeah. much that you need to know. That's true. That's um, a good point. So understand the basics, but don't kill yourself trying to. 
understand the nth degree of detail. Yeah, I, I think understand understand. I think understanding again depends on the it depends on the type of understanding the big picture, and understanding that pragmatically is more useful than understanding the total nitty-gritty details because mm-hmm. nitty-gritty details keep changing, right? So s- sort of understanding the big picture and how things sort of are sort of the rough trajectory versus the actual trajectory, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that is, um, I think, important. But other than that, I think, yeah, I think it's it's right. I mean, you, you, you're you going to be on your own, so you need to understand. Mm-hmm. And you need to know what you own. Yes, least. and why yeah. you own it, right? And why you own it. Very good. Mate, the last one I want to draw on is kind of, it, it kind of, to me, wraps up most of what we've talked about most of the time. That's just simply the mistake of waiting. Um, you mentioned David Gardner's point, and maybe we don't need to just spend too much time on this one, but you mentioned David Gardner's point about, you know, when asked to forecast the market, I mean, I, I always say I don't know. I think I think that's the most honest answer anytime. Uh, but David Gardner is, is, is no less honest, but, but probabilistically at least informed where he says, well, I think it's going to be up because it's up two times out of three. And so he says that almost by definition, he'll have the best track record of anyone in the market because those who say up and down, up and down different years, law of averages, you know, all that kind of stuff, unless you are baking in the fact that markets tend to rise, um, you're, you know, you toss a coin, you're right 50% of the time. He's right two thirds of the time on average, just by saying up this year, not because he expects it to be up per se, just because he's playing the straight out probabilities. Writ large, that's also true. And again, I mentioned that Vanguard index chart earlier and the fact that the market is up and up really strongly over time despite the the, the slumps, despite the crashes, despite the catastrophes and the calamities um, because companies, you, you've talked about this before and you've got a phrase for it. Is it the power of human ingenuity? Is that what you say? Yeah. I think, love that line. Um, you know, over time for more than a century and no, no guarantees it won't stop. I guess we can't ever give promises or guarantees but over more than a century, Markets go up because people find new ways of doing new things or existing things better. Um, they tend to, you know, work best in capitalist structures most of the time. Capitalism doesn't solve every problem or doesn't solve problems perfectly, but generally speaking, people are finding new ways of solving problems or giving us things we didn't know we needed. Uh, you know, very few people wanted an iPhone before the iPhone was invented, right? Um, very few people wanted, in fact, you know, we told the story yesterday, Doc, to, to the rest of our team about Tom and David, David Gardner, our co-founders, being on TV in the 90s, trying to trying to make the case for why people might use their credit cards to buy stuff online on a, on a daytime talk show where people were saying, no, that'll never happen. Um, you know those things. Those things. You know, people inventing can, can see the future. They or not see the future. Can inventing the future in some cases. Um, Elon Musk moves towards electronic vehicles. The, the, these things are are businesses that are are truly bringing us new solutions. Either that we knew we wanted, didn't know we wanted, didn't know were possible. Um, waiting historically has been a terrible, terrible thing to do. Waiting for the right time to invest. Maybe it's the buy on dips thing writ large. Uh, maybe I'm just saying. Dollar cost average is the solution. I don't know, but your your thoughts on on the mistake of waiting? Yeah, like I mean, you know, I, I think it's it's very easy, especially when the market is at or close all time highs, yeah, or near all time highs. It seems like you know, or, you mm. know, a few hundred points from all time highs. It seems like well, now surely isn't the right time. <laughs> I, I think that's, I'll wait until yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the hardest battle, and I think. It mm. affects new and old investors equally. Like, so if you're if you're an existing investor and you've got cash on the sidelines, there's a just general mm. tendency. Mm. Ah, I don't want to invest right now. <laughs> I'm going to wait. Uh, and if you're a brand new investor, you think, well, should I get in right now or not? And you know, there's this tendency. I think the timing tendency is 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 mm. always there. It's very hard to actually get rid of. Um, and 
so what what can you really do? The mm. solution really is to accept that there's a problem. Number one, right? Yep. The moment you yes. accept that there's a problem, then you yes. can find a solution <laughs> out of it. That's right. Uh, and then, then you can make, uh, you know, if you're investing into the market as in via an ETF and a broad market index, then you can just make it a regular habit. That solves, takes care of that problem altogether. Right. Right. Alternatively, if you're a brand new investor that you're starting, I mean, again, you don't, I, you know, this is counter to what I'm saying, but you, do, I would actually never put my whole money yeah. if I'm a new investor right away. And right. the reason, if if, and the reason I wouldn't do that is. If after that the market went down, yeah, the likelihood that t- this investor is actually going to disappear right, from exactly. investing is pretty high, yeah. right? So therefore, I feel like you know if you have got a bunch of money that you want to invest, investing it a little bit slowly, which yep. results in on average lower returns, yep. uh, but a higher probability of sticking around. Yeah, I think I think the sticking around. So uh, I think my my whole approach to investing has been just invest regularly. There might be even periods when I'm, I'm basically like you know, basically taking a break. I'm not mm, investing mm, because mm. that's okay, right? But as long as I keep doing the investing over longish period of time, I'll still be fine. Yeah. And 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 I think that I think overall I think you know we talk about numbers and you said you know numbers are point in time and this and that. I think what what you know, the higher level point I guess we want to make is. You want to be invested, and you want to be invested for the long term. You mm. want to periodically invest. That period, you can decide whatever that period is, whenever you feel comfortable. As long as you're doing it enough, mm. and often over a longish period of time, in general, the markets have delivered stupendous returns, right? And that's what's important, right? Yep. Yep. And maybe, maybe the maybe the antidote is actually staying in the course, right? Maybe that's the whole point: is that for all of that. Um, averaging into the market, adding money regularly, whether it's up front or over time, and certainly over time once you've started, um, and being able to enjoy the compound gains. This is, I think this is the thing, right? It's like we, we, we can't and we're not allowed to make any promises about the future, and so we won't. But if you've got a, more than a century of, of gains and, and a system that works, I mean, if you're, if you're a pessimist, maybe you're saying, aha, yeah, but it'll stop now. And you could have been saying that in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. You could have said during the GFC, ha ha, I told you capitalism was broken. And then there was the recovery. And then you could say during COVID, see, this is going to reshape the economy. And those things are all possible. It's always possible. But it's a really, 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 really long bow to draw to try and say that after so much success, this is suddenly going to change. And I think that's, for me, it's both averaging in and also just frankly, just staying the course, right? Being around to take advantage of the gains that I think you think we think are likely to keep coming because the forces that drive innovation and success are the ones we can benefit from and they're not going to stop anytime soon. Uh, well, I hope they don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, That's well, one, for, for know, a whole lot of reasons, right? Yeah, for a whole lot of reasons, just, you know, for just for general life reasons, we don't want innovations to stop. And, I, I you know, as just by design, by yeah. by design, human beings are such that, yep. they, you know, it's unlikely that innovations are stopped. So, I mean, yep. you know, and... That's what we are really betting on. Human ingenuity, as you say. Human ingenuity. That's a good place to stop, mate. I think so. We hope you've enjoyed this particular podcast on some mistakes you can hopefully avoid and more importantly, as I said, how to make some money by doing the opposite. Hopefully, I'm having a good holiday and it's not raining too much here. You're at home enjoying yourself and undercover in the warmth and I'm probably somewhere soaking wet in the rain. I think yours sounds better. Even if you're wet, you're outside. <laughs> Doing stuff. We'll take it. We'll that, take that, it. That sounds, you know, it's a, it's a, I'll take the rain if it happens, but if it doesn't happen, that's great. If it happens, it's okay. 
I'll, I'll take your optimism. Let's go with that. That does wrap us up, fools. But before we go, don't forget, you can and should subscribe to the Triple A Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And of course, you can use the Podcast One app as well. We're part of the Podcast One network. If you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be lovely. Please tell your friends. Don't tattoo it on yourself or anybody else. Uh, maybe you know, on the driveway and chalk is okay. Paint it on your fence as long as it's your fence, not somebody else's. Do what you can. Do it legally. Do it responsibly. Come on. You're decent people. And don't forget, of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. You'll also get a bit of marketing material from us on that site. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back in two days' time for a very special Sunday Mailbag Edition. Until then, full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.